Good morning again. Uh, please turn in the Bible to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. It is great to be here at First Baptist. I appreciate a church that is not ashamed of caffeine. I do. Because <laughs> I have a problem, and it, it comforts me to know that there's other people that have a problem as well. My particular poison is energy drinks, and uh, my hope is, is that if I drink enough that I will turn into the Incredible Hulk. That's my kind of a dream I have, so I'm working toward that end. Please, please pray with me. I, I think that the evangelization of China would go better if I had the ability to turn into a green rage monster. So that's, that's what I'm praying for. Um, but I, I am so excited to spend a few days with you. I know your pastor a little bit, and I've heard a lot about this church. I've uh, I've counted this church a friend from a distance, as, as this church has seemed to be always just uh, a couple steps away from me in my life. I've always known people who are coming through here and being encouraged by this church and being sent out of this church. And so to be able to come and see where all those crazy people are coming from is really, really a blessing and very exciting. And, and my prayer is that this week and these few days we have together that God would impress upon us the urgency of the mission and challenge us to reach. I love that name that we're going to talk about reaching this week. And that's what it's going to take. It's going to take some stretching. It's going to take some reaching. It's going to take some digging. But if we will be faithful to the command, man, the, 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 the glories that we can see are really just unfathomable. And that's what we want to talk about today in the book of Ephesians. Um, I, you, know, you know, this is Ephesians was written by Paul, and if you've ever noticed this about Paul's letters, Paul's letters, you could almost think that they start in the mountains and they end in the valleys. And, and what I mean by that is when you start reading one of Paul's books, Romans, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, or whatever, that he's ta- in the first chapters he's talking about all these huge, massive, glorious truths, these heavenly spiritual realities. I mean, he's talking about God's purposes in creating the world. He's talking about what God's doing uh, throughout human history. But then by the time you get to the end, he's like telling people in the church to stop fussing at each other. He's telling wives and husbands to love each other. He's telling kids to obey their parents. He's down to the nitty-gritty of everyday life, okay? And so chapter 3 in Ephesians is kind of like the in-between thing. It's kind of like that curving mountain road coming out of those big heights of chapter 1 and chapter 2 in Ephesians, and he's coming down into the nitty-gritty everyday life stuff that he talks about in chapter 4, 5, and 6. Now, when you're coming down a mountain road, it's, it's best to, you know, go slow and take it easy in the curves, but we don't got time for that, so we're going to come 90 miles an hour down this thing, and we'll either have a good time or we will fall off the mountain and die. So one of these two things will happen, and I, and I hope that we will see here in this chapter what it is that Paul wants to impress upon this church because it is a reality that also needs to be impressed upon our hearts. Let's start in verse number one. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. If you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power unto me, 
who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Now, in this passage, there's something very strange that happens. If you look at verse number one, Paul says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. Now, Paul calls himself a prisoner. At this time, he is in prison when he writes this. But you know what? I don't want to nitpick at Paul, you know, because he's in prison, so he's probably under a little bit of stress. Uh, but you know what? Verse number one, you all remember grammar class when you were little kids in school? Maybe you learned that a, a good sentence, the right kind of grammatically sentence, you know, it's supposed to have what? A subject, a verb, and a complete thought, right? Is that just me? I'm not, I'm not just making that up, right? Okay, a subject, verb, and a complete thought. Would well, you know that verse one doesn't have that? Verse one is just a subject. Paul says, I, Paul. And then he starts talking about some other stuff. Seriously, go try to find the verb that goes with Paul in verse one. You won't find it. But look down at verse number 13. I'm sorry, verse number 14. How does verse 14 start? For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how verse 1 starts with those words? For this cause I, verse 14, for this cause I. You know what Paul does? Paul starts the sentence in verse 1. He gets distracted and starts talking about something for the next 13 verses. And then in verse 14, he comes back to the thought that he started way back in verse number 1. So you could, even in your Bibles, if you wanted, you could kind of draw parentheses around verse 2 all the way down to the end of verse 13. So something about what Paul says in verse 1 makes him say, hold on, hold on a second, I've got to talk about this. And then he goes on this kind of tangent for 13 verses. And then in verse 14, he says, so like I was saying, for this cause, I, Paul bow my knee into the Lord in prayer, okay? So why does Paul stop? I think it's because in verse 1, how does Paul describe himself in verse 1? He says, for this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you, Gentiles, for you. It almost sounds like he's blaming him, doesn't it? He's like, you know, I'm the prisoner of Christ for you. You want him in jail? Because of you. I would come over there, start in your church, preaching the gospel to you. I got arrested. I'm in jail. It's on you guys. Now, I don't think Paul is trying to put them on a guilt trip, but you know what? Look at verse number 13. Look at 13. Paul says, wherefore, because of what I just said in this parentheses, I desire that you what? Faint not at my tribulations, what? For you, which is your glory. Okay, so verse, four, verse 13 says for you, just like verse 1 says for you. So I think what Paul, the reason Paul stops there in verse 1 is Paul says, I'm the prisoner for your sakes. Now he knows, how's that church going to feel about that? Oh, they're not feeling real good about it. Paul, the apostle that loved them, that started their church, he did all that stuff for them, and now it's winding them up in prison. And Paul says, I'm the prisoner of Christ for you guys. But he says, hold on, guys. Hold on, guys. Hey, don't be upset about that. Don't be upset that I'm in prison because I brought you the gospel. So verse 2 through verse 13 is going to explain to us why Paul doesn't care. And he's trying to tell them, hey, guys, I don't want you to be upset about this. I don't want you to be upset that my preaching, that my starting churches has landed me in jail. I don't want you guys to be upset that the fact that I'm a missionary has winded me up in this prison cell. Don't be upset about that, guys. And here's why. Verse 2 through verse 12. Okay? So you know what Paul's going to tell us in verse 2 to verse 12? Why he likes Gentiles so much. Why does Paul like Gentiles so much? Now, I got a question for y'all. 
Is Paul a Gentile? No. He's a Jewish person, okay? Now, if Paul's not a Gentile, then why is he so obsessed with Gentiles? Have you know what, you know what Paul's life is? Just run around and find Gentiles and preach the gospel at them. He's like, oh, I heard some Gentiles over there. I'm going to go find and preach the gospel at them. He preached the gospel to those Gentiles. He heard some Gentiles over there. He's going to run over there and preach the gospel to them. Dude's getting rocks thrown at him. He's getting beat, thrown in jail, shipwrecked. He's going through all that, and he says, I'm happy. I'm just having a great time because I'm preaching the gospel to Gentiles. Now, if Paul's not a Gentile, okay, if he's not one of them, then why is he so excited about Gentiles coming to faith in Christ? You know, you guys ever been to a little kid's uh, birthday party before? You know, at the, at the birthday party, the birthday boy is always excited to open the presents, but there's always that one kid. It's not his birthday, but he don't know it. He's more excited about the presents being opened than the kid that, how many of y'all, you live with that kid? Anybody live with that kid, right? Okay, that kid, he's more, is that the way Paul is? Paul's just so excited to see people get presents, and he's like, oh, the Gentiles going to get faith in Christ. They're excited about that. Is that, what, is that what Paul's doing? Why is Paul so excited? Can I tell you this? When we meet Christ, when we encounter the gospel, when God saves us, you know what one of the things, one of the effects of that is? Is that you start to love people that you have no business loving. That it doesn't make sense for you to like them. Can I tell you this? This conference is a really weird idea. Let's get a bunch of people from eastern Ohio together and let's just talk about sending the gospel to a bunch of countries. How about that? Hey, you're not from there. They're not your people. They got nothing to do with you. It's, their, their blood isn't up. So why are, you, why are you so upset about it? Why are you so interested in bringing the gospel to those people? What's it have to do with you? You know, people in China, they ask us that all the time, like, why are you guys here? We hear America's a good place. We're all, like, trying to get there. So what are you doing here? Like, are you lost? You know, they don't understand, like, what you're doing there. And so the Ephesians, they didn't really understand. And Paul's in prison, and they're like, that, that dummy, he's come preaching to us, now he's in jail. And they're upset about it. And Paul says, listen, guys, listen, I'm happy. I'm happy in my jail cell. I'm proud of my jail cell. And let me tell you why. So what Paul's going to do in these verses, he is going to tell us why he's so excited about Gentiles. And let me tell you this. I'm not, I mean, I think, I'm not naive. I mean, I think there's probably some people in here this, this morning, and you think, what's the point? Why are we doing all this? Four days in a row of church to talk about people in other countries without the gospel? Who cares? Who cares? Why are we so upset about this? Why are we working so hard for this? And your heart doesn't burn with it. You're not moved by it. And you don't feel that passion. And you don't desire it. Man, I hope you'll pay attention to verse 2 through 12. Because Paul's going to tell us why he cares so much. And I hope that when we leave today that maybe we'll feel the same thing. That we'll burn with him. So the first reason, I'm going to look at three reasons that Paul gives. Reason number one, or point number one, Paul cares about the Gentiles because he knew the glory God had purposed to them. He cared about the Gentiles because he knew the glory God had purposed for them to receive. Now look at verse number two. Verse number two starts with the word if. Okay, so this is the first kind of opening of the parentheses. He says, I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word. Okay? Now, when Paul says if there, does he mean if, like it's conditional, like if you haven't heard, then I'm not, then, then I'm not an apostle, then I haven't been given this grace? 
Uh, no, he doesn't mean if like that. Sometimes we mean if like that. Like, if it rains, then I won't come into the bonfire tonight. Like, if it rains, then I won't. That's the condition. If it rains, I won't go. Is that what Paul means? Like, if you haven't heard, if you've heard, then, I'm, then God's given me grace. But if you haven't heard, then God hasn't given me grace. No, of course, that's not what he means, okay? Let me give you another example of what this if can mean. If I hadn't seen you for a while, and, you know, Steph and I told you guys last hour that Steph and I just adopted a baby girl. Uh, and I saw you, and I hadn't seen you for a while, and, uh, and I was talking to you about what it was like to be a father. But then I thought, maybe, maybe he hasn't heard. So I said, um, I just love being a father. If you've heard, if you've heard that we adopted. Now, what does that mean? That if you haven't heard that I haven't adopted? No, what does it mean? It means what I'm saying won't make any sense to you unless you know what comes after the if. Unless you've heard that we've adopted, then it won't make any sense to you when I say, I'm the father of Galilee. Like, that won't make any sense to you. You'd be like, what? You have some kid somewhere I don't know about, right? So I say, I'm the father of Galilee if you've heard. Okay, now here's what Paul says. I'm the prisoner of Christ for you if you've heard. Heard what? What do they need to understand? Verse 2. If you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God. That dispensation looks like the word dispense or dispenser for a reason. So Paul says, God dispensed grace to me. God gave me some grace. Now what was this grace for? He says it was given me to you. So this grace that God gave to Paul was for them. But what was the grace actually? Look at verse 3 how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Verse 4, whereby when ye read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So in other words, what Paul says, God let me in on a mystery. God told me about a mystery. Now Paul uses this word mystery an awful lot in his writings. And he uses it to describe the gospel. Now, um, sometimes when we hear the word mystery and talking about the gospel, we think it means that it just doesn't make sense. Like, nobody can understand it. Like, yeah, it's just a mystery how God saves people and how God loves us. We can't understand just a mystery. Is that, is that what the word mystery there means? Because when we think mystery, what are we thinking of? We're thinking Sherlock Holmes. We're thinking of like a, like a spy movie. We're thinking Jason Bourne. So we're thinking you don't really know how it's going to turn out, right? It's, it's a mystery. So we sometimes ask people ask us a hard question about the Bible. We're like, I don't know. It's a mystery. God's ways are mysterious. We don't really know. Is, is that what Paul means here? No, I don't think so. Because look at verse number five, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Okay? So when Paul uses the word mystery, what's he trying to say? There are some truths about God that were hid in the past. But now, with the appearance of Christ, they have become known. With the appearance of Christ, we know now what God is doing. That means before Jesus came, before Jesus appeared in the form of a little baby in the city of Bethlehem, in the town of Bethlehem, there was a lot about what God was doing in the world that did not make sense to people, that they did not understand. But with the appearance of Christ and with Jesus explaining that truth to the apostles, suddenly it makes sense. Um, and what he says there in verse 5 is that it's now revealed. Okay? And here's the thing about the Old Testament. Have you ever noticed that Christians, when we look at the Old Testament, we see Jesus so clearly? But if you ask a Jewish person you know, who believes the Old Testament and try to show them Jesus in the Old Testament, they can't see it. They can't see it. Isn't it so obvious to you? Read Isaiah 53. He's right there. It's Jesus, right? When you see Abraham offering Isaac on an altar, it's right there. It's Jesus. And yet you can show somebody you know, who just believes the Old Testament, they can read that and they cannot understand. Isn't it so funny that when Jesus came, no one understood Why'd they nail him to a cross? Because they didn't get it. It was hidden. It was not revealed yet. But Paul says that knowledge has been revealed to me. Now, let me take you a little illustration. When I was in uh, this past summer, 
uh, I went with Steph's family to uh, the Grand Canyon, uh, way out there in, I don't even know what state. I was just, you know, when you're on vacation with your in-laws, you just get in the car and you just go wherever you're told to go, you know? So uh, one day they said, we're going on a tour of some other canyon. I said, whatever. So I get in the car, drive. And it was some, one of these canyons where it's like real narrow and there was light coming in from the top and it like shone on the, on the rocks and it was supposed to be, you could like see shapes in the rock. Like, oh, like there's a, there's a guy with a wheelbarrow. Oh, there's, a guy, there's a guy smoking a cigar. There's a guy, there's a bear. There's a duck, you know, there's stuff like that in the, in the, in the walls. And we had a, we had a Navajo uh, tour guide which I've waited my whole life to be able to say that, that I had a Navajo tour. It was so cool. And the guy was taking us in there, and he's like, now look up there. You see that? There's a bear in the rock. Can I tell you, I did not see any of it. I did not see any of it. I'm like, I don't believe it. I'm not buying it. And everybody else is just lying. They're like, oh, yeah, it's beautiful. They didn't see it either. I'm pretty sure they didn't see it. So we're walking through there, and they're showing us all the animals and stuff like that. And I just got sick of it. Finally, I told the guys, like, I think you're making it up. I don't see nothing. I don't believe in any of it. He's like, give me your camera. So dude takes my camera. And he takes a picture of the rock, okay? Then he takes the camera, he flips it around, shows me a little viewfinder thing, you know, a little screen there. And he says, look here, dummy. And he points with his finger, and he outlined the bear. He says, see, there's the mouth, there's the ear, there's the you see the bear? And you know what? I saw it. And I looked up at the rock, and there it was. And I could not see it. You know what? No matter where I went, there it was. It was hidden in plain sight. I could not see it. But when somebody showed it to me, all of a sudden, there it was. And I couldn't unsee it. Can I tell you? That's kind of the way the Old Testament is for Christians. You know, other people can look at the Old Testament and look around and say, I don't see Jesus anywhere. I don't see him anywhere. And then he comes, and you see Christ, and you see what he does on the cross, and you see the work of Christ, and you look back at the Old Testament, and there he is. He's on every page. He was hidden in plain sight. And so what Paul says is, this mystery has been made known to me. Have you ever tried to read a, uh, a mystery story twice? <laughs> Don't work real well, right? Why? Because you, you already know the end, right? And you can see the bad guy coming a mile away. You can see how it's all going to play out. You see all the pieces coming together. Can I tell you, that's what's so cool about Christians. We read the Old Testament. We see what God was doing in all those thousands of years. We see how he was putting the pieces together and setting the stage for his son to come and redeem the world. Now, what is, what is, how does Paul say this mystery works? Look at verse number six. He says, the mystery that is re- revealed to me is that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Check this out. Paul says, you want to know why I'm so excited about the Gentiles? He says, because I'm in on the mystery. He says, the mystery, back in the Old Testament, what did the Jewish people think? Who's God going to save? (laughs) It's Jewish people, of course. Forget you Gentiles, you Ohio people who don't want none of you, okay? But you know what? God had a plan, and he was putting the pieces together, and it was a mystery. They didn't see it. Nobody saw it coming. But then, guess what happened? Jesus shows up and says, It's for the Gentiles too. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So you know what we're doing? Why why we have this missions conference? Why are we so excited? Because guess what we found out? People like us get in. People like us get into the people of God. No one saw that coming. That was a mystery. We're the end of the mystery story. Guess what? Twist. We get in. And you know what? We get so excited about that. You know what we want to do? We want to run all over the world and tell people, hey, you can get in. There's glory to be had. God has determined to give glory to people that were far away from him. Can I tell you this? I know more about what an ideal Chinese person looks like than a Chinese person. See, Chinese people, they have this Chinese ideal, what a good Chinese person is like. 
They have this good idea that what they think a good, their dream of the perfect kind of life they could live as a Chinese person. Can I tell you, their dream is like this big compared to what I want to see happen in their lives. Oh, they want to, you know, make a little bit of money, be comfortable, you know, have a nice job, raise a, raise a couple good-looking kids, and, and live, in a, live, in a, live a peaceful, peaceable kind of life. Can I tell you, man, we've got so much bigger plans for them than that. We've got so much bigger plans than them. We want to see God rain down eternal glory into their souls. That's what we want to see happen. And Paul says, man, I'm going, why am I running over to the Ephesians? Why do I not mind that I got thrown in the jail cell? Paul says, I'm sitting here in the jail cell. It's worth it, man, because I saw eternal glory come into these people's lives. One of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis, he says, you've never met a mere mortal. You've never met a mere mortal. He says, every person that you've ever met in a million years will either be a creature of such incredible terror and horror that you would flee from its presence, or they will be a creature of such incredible glory that you'd probably flee from its presence too. That's everybody you've ever met. Everybody in this room, you are on one of two roads, buddy. You are headed for either eternal glory or eternal terror and horror. And you know what Paul says? Hey, man, I'm standing right in between that. I'm standing right in the middle of that. He says, when I'm going out there, I'm preaching to these Gentiles. Why am I so excited? I, I don't just feel bad for the little Gentile people, you know, little Ephesians, little Corinthians, little Ohioans. He doesn't think they're cute. That's not why he's there. I'm not in China because I think Chinese people are cute, okay? Even though I did marry an Asian girl. I'm in China because I know that God wants to bring them immeasurable, eternal, unquenchable glory. And that's why we're excited this morning. And that's why we're having this conference. And that's why we want to send money and people around the world and do this thing because we know that God has purposed eternal glory. That's what we want to see happening in Cambodia and the Czech Republic. That's what we want to see happening, okay? So that's the first reason. Paul says, I know the glory that God has purpose to them. Number two, Paul knew the mission God had given to him. Why was Paul so beside himself about these Gentiles? Why has Paul got this Gentile obsession? Because he knew the mission that God had given to him. Now, did God do this? Did God call Paul over and say, hey, buddy, hey, you're my favorite of all those apostles. You're my favorite. You're my number one apostle. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna whisper this mystery in your ear, but don't you tell nobody. This is just me and my apostles. Nobody else gets to know about this, okay? My best friend, best friends forever. Don't tell nobody. Is, is that what he did? No, check it out. Look at verse number six. He says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs in the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof, in other words, of that gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given. Why was this grace given to Paul? That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. But Paul didn't, God didn't call Paul over and say, I'm going to tell you this secret because you're my favorite, you're my favorite, I'm going to tell you this mystery, don't tell nobody. Instead, what did he do? Hey, Paul, the doors are thrown open. You know what time it is? It's preaching time. It is the time of proclamation and announcement to the entire earth about what it is that I'm doing in the world. It's the time to proclaim it from the housetops. Now, over these next few days, um, I didn't plan it like this, but as I was praying about what what I was going to preach while I was here, it just seemed like every message I kind of settled on, said, okay, I want to preach this while I'm there. Every one of them was kind of talking a little bit about what this time is that we live in right now. Can I tell you what a lot of Christians' problem is? They don't know when they are. 
You don't know when you, you don't even, I'm telling you, we got to wrap our brains around what it is that's going on in the world right now. In this time between Christ's first coming and his second coming, we got to understand what age is. Let me tell you, it's the age of openness. It is the age of proclamation. It is the age of announcing what it is that God is doing around the world. Now let me, let me please, please hear me when I say this about verse number seven and verse number eight. Not by good deeds, not by good deeds is this mystery made known. I pray, it is my prayer, I hope that every one of us in here is fully committed to loving our neighbor. I hope every one of us in here is committed to helping the poor. I hope every one of us is committed to doing what we can for those around us. But can I tell you, we can do all that and it will profit the world nothing if they lose their soul. And Paul says, I was not sent into this world just to be a good guy. I was not sent here just to be a good neighbor. It is not the age for that. It is the age of proclamation. It is the age of openness. I have been sent to preach among the Gentiles. When he says preach, he's not talking about standing behind this pulpit thing and talking. What he meant was announce. I've been sent to announce to the world, to proclaim to the world what is going on right now and what the opportunities are for Gentiles all over the place. Now look at verse 9. Well, I want to focus there at verse 8. I'm sorry. Go back to verse 8. He says, that I should preach among the Gentiles what? How, now notice how he, how he describes this. What are we preaching, folks? This is so, if you miss this, you won't want to preach very much. See, most of us, you know, we like doing good deeds. You want to know why we like doing good deeds? Because it's a little bit easier in talking to people about Jesus. It's a little bit easier in talking to people about Jesus. You know, but when you catch this, though, it'll get a lot easier. What does Paul say? What have I been sent to preach? The unsearchable riches of Christ. You know what I'm doing in China? I'm, you guys won't believe it. I'm telling you. You know what I get to do in China? I am like passing out winning lottery tickets all day. That's all I'm doing. That's my job. I am telling people, in Christ, we have been immeasurably, immeasurably, unsearchably blessed. That when you get connected to Christ, when you get put in to the mystery, when you get put in to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have riches that this world cannot contain. You have riches that far outweigh everything that is of value in this entire world. And let me tell you, when you see that, when you get that, that you're giving out not bad news. I'm telling you, we're not out in this world. We're not here in New Philadelphia giving out bad news, people. We're here giving out good news. You know what, we, you know what the church should look like? The church should look like a bunch of lottery winners. When we come to rejoice, we sing these songs. Why do we, we should be here having a good time. Why? Hey, we, we have got unsearchable riches. So let's rejoice like it. Let's go out in this world like rejoicing ministers who proclaim to the world that there are unsearchable riches in Christ. Look at verse 9. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of, of the mystery. This word fellowship means something like partnership or to be, to be connected to something. So he's saying, I'm here to tell people how great it is to be connected to that mystery, to be connected to that mystery. And let me tell you, we've been given a task. We've been given a mission. Why are we so excited about what's going on with the Gentiles? We've been given a mission. Why are we here this week? Why are we going to spend four days to talk about missions? Because we've got a mission. We've got a task. It's the age of openness. It is the age of proclamation. But I want to show you one more thing here. One third truth that got Paul excited. Hey, Paul was excited sitting in that jail cell because he knew he was on a mission and that mission was to bring unsearchable riches to a bunch of Gentiles to bring them the glory of God. But number three, Paul was excited about Gentiles because he knew the wisdom God had displayed to demons. Because he knew the wisdom God had displayed to demons. Yes, demons. 
All right, let's look down there at verse number 9. Now, before we read this, let me ask you this. What is God's end game? Like, what is it that he's trying to do in all this? Okay, so you've got a few thousand years, and it's hidden. Shh, quiet, don't tell nobody. Nobody can see. Nobody can understand what's going on. And now all of a sudden, he's like, all right, guys, go to it. Go to the world. Tell the whole world. Preach to the whole world. It's the age of openness. the age of proclamation. It's the age of telling the whole world. What is God doing with this mystery stuff? And then now, now it's open. God, make up your mind. What is it that you're trying to do? What is he trying to do? Why even have a mystery? Why even have that time of mystery, right? Wouldn't it make a lot more sense if, if in the Old Testament he was like, uh, I'm going to send my son. His name's going to be Jesus. He's going to be born to a girl named Mary. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. This guy named Herod's going to try to kill him. Then Jesus is going to grow up. When he, he's going to preach. He's going to do miracles. And then the Pharisees are going to try to nail him. To, yeah, see, why didn't he just do that? Wouldn't that seem to be a little bit better? So why does he do it like this? Look what he says in verse number 10. Let's start nine. He says, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Okay, why'd you do that, God? Verse 10, to the intent that, in other words, so that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Now, verse 10 is a packed little sentence, so let's take it a step at a time. He says, to the intent that, so that now, what might be made known? The manifold wisdom of God. Okay, let's start right there. You know what Paul says God was doing in all that time? You know what God's been doing in human history? Proving something about himself. God's got something to prove. And what's he trying to prove? What is he trying to demonstrate in the earth? His wisdom. His wisdom. He's trying to tell everybody, check me out. Look what a glorious God I am. Look what a wise and powerful God I am. Now, now how's he going to do? You say, what does that have to do with the mystery? Okay, notice who it is that he's showing this wisdom off to. He says, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known the manifold wisdom of God. Who are the principalities and powers in heavenly places? Demons. Two chapters later, or I'm sorry, chapter 6, Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Who do we wrestle against? Principalities and powers in heavenly places. We wrestle against spiritual evil. We wrestle against spiritual evil forces. And so what Paul says, God is trying to prove his wisdom. God's trying to demonstrate his wisdom. Who's he trying to demonstrate his wisdom to? To demons. Now, let me ask you this. Why would God want to do that? Okay, or why does God have to demonstrate his, his wisdom to demons? Well, if you think, what do you think demons pretty much do all day? I mean, besides bug you, right? Uh, what, what, what do demons do all day? They mock God. They scoff at God. They call God a fool. You say, how do you know that? Remember back there in the book of Job? Uh, God calls all the spiritual forces in the world to stand before him. And the devil was there. And God says to the devil, have you considered my servant Job? Nobody like him. And what's the devil say? Of course. You're so good to that guy. But if you take away all the junk he's got, he'd curse you to your face. And God says, okay, go give it a try. Now when you read that, what do you think? God, are you... Are you a fool? You are playing into his hands. Even us human people can see what the devil is doing, right? We can see what the devil is doing. So why does God agree to that? And what does, God, what does the devil do? He goes and destroys everything that, that, that Job has. 
And Job doesn't curse God to his face. Then the devil comes back. And God says, hey, you see what you did? I, I just took away all the stuff like you asked me to. And he's still, he is still serving me. And what's, what's the devil say? God falls for it again. And here's God raining down punishment and judgment, the listen looks like judgment, on his servant because the devil seems to be tricking him into doing it. Is God a fool? Let me tell you, the, the devils sure seem to think so. Okay? You know what they do all the time? They mock God and say, what a fool you must be. Look at what we're doing to your world. You created this place. You created it to be a perfect place. Look at what we've done. Remember back in the Garden of Eden? And what do we think when we read it? God, what are you doing? You are playing your cards all wrong. Okay? God creates the Garden of Eden, right? And then what does he do? He puts a tree in it that they're not allowed to eat off of. No, I don't know about you, but I saw that coming. I'm like, don't put that tree in there, right? And they can't, they can't eat it if you don't put it in front of them. Why does God put the tree there? And then the snake comes in. Um, hello, why did you let the snake come in? I got an idea. How about don't create a devil? How about that? How about don't create a tree? Don't create a snake. It seems like God is playing his cards all wrong. And if you don't think that the devils live to cast that in his face, and you know what was going on for 4,000 years? Mockery. From the Garden of Eden till the appearance of Christ, you know what was going on in the world? Mockery. They destroyed, the, they got the world so messed up that God drowned the whole world in a flood. What do you think the devils thought about that? Man, God, you sure messed up the first time you tried to create a world. Why don't you have another try, big boy? Why don't you try to create another world? You did such a good job the first time. Mockery. They're saying God is a fool. But guess what God's doing? Guess what he's doing? He's setting them up. He's setting them up. Now check this out. Imagine I was bragging to, to Dean, who's good enough to let me stay crash at his place this week. If I'm bragging to him, I'm talking about a good basketball player I am. I'm like, man, I'm like good. I'm like Kobe, me. I mean, I am, I am wonderful. And so Dean's like, all right, well, let's see what you got, man. I got a hoop outside. Let's go play some, let's play some ball. So we go outside. I'm, I'm stretching, you know, doing my, doing my pre, pre-game ritual, you know. And then so Dean gets the ball, get ready to play. I'm like, okay, man, here's the thing. Um, I, need you t- I need to tie you up before we play. I got to play with you against, with your legs tied up. What's he going to say? Well, the, you haven't proved nothing. You being able to beat me with my legs tied up doesn't prove anything. All it proves is you can only beat me when I'm, when I'm weak. And here's the thing. Have you ever wondered, what is God doing in the Old Testament? Agreeing. The devils are coming and proposing things. And what's God do? Go for it. You want to mess Job's life up? Go for it. You want to tempt Eve? Go for it. You want to destroy my world? Go for it. Have at it. You know what God's doing? You know what he says? Come at me full strength. Don't hold anything back. You try all you want. You do whatever you want. What do you want? Go for it. Try it. Do everything you want to my world. Mess my world up for thousands of years. Show how powerful you are. Show me all your muscles. Give me everything you got, and I will still whoop you. I will still defeat you. And let me tell you, what do you think, at what moment, let me ask you this. At what moment do you think that mockery reached its peak? When did God look the most foolish? Oh, maybe when he sent his son to come save the world. And he did such a bad job of it that he was nailed to a tree. But what what did God do? In his moment of greatest weakness, through the foolishness of the cross, what did he do? He broke the enemy's back. He broke him. He took him at his own game. When he looked weakest, through his weakness, he defeated the enemy. Let me tell you this. In a, in a, good, a good action, you know, adventure story, the villain, he never dies in his sleep. 
He never gets stabbed in his sleep. That never happens. Why? Because in order to see the greatness of the champion, you've got to let the villain go full strength. And you know what God does in the Old Testament? Go for it. Have your day, but I will still defeat you. God demonstrates his wisdom through the weakness of the cross. Now, if that's true, let me ask you this. If that's true, then why doesn't verse 10 say, look at verse 10, why doesn't verse 10 say to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers and heavenly places might be known by the cross the manifold wisdom of God? Because isn't it the cross that demonstrates God's superior wisdom? Right? So why does it say the church? Why does it say that God is proving his wisdom by the church? Because let me tell you, a lot of times I come to church, I don't see a whole lot of wisdom at church. Right? I look around church, I'm like, man, this is a bunch of, not, not your church. I mean, this is my first time here, so I'll tell you tomorrow what I think about that. But most churches you go there, you're like, what a bunch of crazy people, man. This is a weird thing that's going on. And I don't see the wisdom of God displayed. But let me tell you something. There's something going on at church. You want to know why we send people around the world to start churches? You want to know why Paul was so excited about Gentiles? Because there's something going on in the church. What is it? You know what Jesus Christ did on the cross? He bought the right to rule as the king of the, of the world, of the universe. And so he won that victory in that day. The victory is done. He's already won. But let me ask you, does it look like he's reigning in this world? Does this world look like a place that Jesus is in charge? Does even New Philadelphia look like Jesus is in charge here? No. And one of the evidences that Paul cites in the book of Ephesians to show that the world is broken is to say that there's enmity between people, that the Jews and the Gentiles can't get along. But in chapter 2, you know what he says? Because Jesus has come and because he won the victory on the cross in the church, what happens? Now the Jews and the Gentiles in their church, the Jews and the Gentiles are starting to get along. They're starting to love each other. Only in the church. Out there, everybody's fighting. They come in the church, though, and the Jews and the Gentiles are getting along. So you know what's going on in the church? This is the place where Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. You walk out those doors, somebody else is in charge. But you come in here, in this place, this is the green zone. This is the place where the victory has been won. This is the place where Jesus rules. Let me tell you this. So when the demons look at the church, you know what they see? A stunning reminder of their defeat at Calvary. When they see the church, you know what they know? You know, what they know? Tick-tock. Just a matter of time. See, it starts at the church, but you know what's going to happen? Eventually, the rule of Christ is going to spread over all the world. The Bible says the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. You know what that means? It means the enemy's got no power. The enemy's got no power in this place. And so when the demons look at the church, you know what they see? A reminder, my time is limited. It's just a matter of time until my defeat is complete, and there's not a speck on this universe that it can contain me. I will be gone. I will be banished to eternal darkness. They know that when they see the church. Let me give you a little illustration. When I was, um, I was a kid, we had uh, two sisters and a brother and four of us in our family, and we were a bunch of hellions, man. We were a, we were a mess. And we just, just dest- I mean, we lived to destroy our house, just to destroy it. And my mom, you know, when she would pretty much let us, you know, do our, do our crazy things, you know. But we could always tell when there was company coming. Because my mom, she would, she would clean one room first. She would, first, she'd clean the kitchen. I don't, she always started in the kitchen. I don't know why. And after she cleaned the kitchen, you know what she would do? She would build a barricade at the door to keep us savages out. You know, she had, like, chairs flipped upside down, so legs like spikes, you know, to st- stab us if we got too close, you know. You know what she did that? She said, I've started with this room, and you're all going to get it dirty again. And then, you know what we knew when we saw that, though? When we saw that, we knew our time was short. 
It was, it was only a matter of time before we were marched up to our rooms and ordered to clean the place up, before we were cleaned up ourselves and made presentable looking for company coming. We knew it was just a matter of time we saw those chairs flipped upside down. And let me tell you, when the demons outside look through those windows and they see what's going on in this place, you know what they know? It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. You know what? You know why Paul was so excited about the church? You wanna know why Paul was so thrilled about the church? Because he knew the church around the world, in China, the advance of the church in China is proof that Christ is going to return to rule over this entire mess. When the church takes a thunderous step forward, the demons quake. When the church assembles, the evil spiritual forces of this world tremble. And Paul says, hey man, that's why I'm excited. Let me tell you, if you're not excited about missions, if you're not excited about the missions, then you really don't even understand the cross yet. Go back and look at the cross See what he's doing on the cross and see how the church is his trophy. The church is his victory. Now, why does Paul say all this again? Look at verse 13 and we're done. Verse 13, he says, So, wherefore, because of those things, I I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. You know what Paul says? I kind of like my jail cell. I kind of like my jail cell. Do you know what I got for this jail cell? You know what I exchanged to get this jail cell? A bunch of people heard the gospel. A bunch of wicked Gentiles heard the gospel. Christ is winning. The battle is his, and I'm in a jail cell. I'll take it. You know what Paul says? I will gladly suffer for them. You know what we're going to talk about this week? The opportunity that you have to suffer for other people the opportunity to suffer for the nations of the world. Let me ask you this morning, we're done. Who are you suffering for? Uh, Who is it that because you desire to see all that stuff we talked about happening today, you want to see that happening in your life, so you're living with a little bit of suffering? It's hurting a little bit. It's hurting a little bit to give. It's hurting a little bit to love. It's hurting a little bit to go. It's hurting a a little bit to preach. And maybe you're in a little jail cell of your own. And if you don't have one, Man, this week I hope you get a jail cell. I do. I hope you get to see what Paul saw in the Gentiles and all these places around the world. Let's pray together.